It's Wednesday, September 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Trump administration is weighing a range of options for action against Iran after attacks on Saudi oil plants. Retaliatory action could include a cyber attack or a physical attack against Iranian oil facilities. Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico, joins us for what to know about the attacks and also how Saudi Arabia figures into the foreign policy of the president. Next, the latest blunder from the New York Times on a story about new sexual misconduct allegations against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh has raised a lot of questions. A key portion was left out of the initial report that the woman involved has no recollection of the incident. Niall Stanage, White House columnist at The Hill, joins us for more. Finally, NBC Universal has released some details of their upcoming streaming service. Launching in April 2020, the service will be called Peacock and will have more than 15,000 hours of content with library titles like The Office and Parks and Recreation and original content such as reboots of Battlestar Galactica and Saved by the Bell. Leslie Goldberg, co-host of TV's Top 5 podcast for The Hollywood Reporter, joins us for all the details. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Well, we have a lot of options, but uh, I'm not looking at options right now. We want to find definitively who did this. Uh, we're dealing with Saudi Arabia. We're dealing with the Crown Prince and so many other of your neighbors. And we're all talking about it together. We'll see what happens. Joining us now is Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Nahal. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about these recent attacks on the Saudi Arabia oil plants the United States has blamed Iran in these attacks and said that these were extremely surgical. They think that there might have been at least 20 drones involved in this, and it really crippled Saudi Arabia and their oil production for a moment. They had to half their oil production capacity, about 5.7 million barrels per day. Nahal, tell us a little bit more about what we know about these attacks and why the United States is blaming Iran. Well, according to various reports and Trump administration officials, the belief is that these attacks were too sophisticated to be carried out by anyone other than a state actor. And the only state actor that really seems to want to pull off something like this would be Iran. Now, President Trump himself has not definitively blamed Iran. He has said it's probably them, but that we still need to do more investigating. But Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has flat out explicitly blamed Iran. And so it's one of those weird situations where the president seems like he wants to give himself some wiggle room as he tries to decide how to respond or if to respond to this attack. And the U.S. has released satellite images, a bunch of stuff basically saying that the Houthi rebels in Yemen, they had claimed responsibility for the attack, but a lot of it just doesn't add up. They're saying the attacks came from a north-northwest vantage point and the rebels are in a southwest vantage point. So a lot of it doesn't add up, but Iran has basically said that we had nothing to do with this, as usual. Obviously, they're going to say that. But that leads us into really the next part of the discussion is the United States response. You said that the president has given himself a little bit of wiggle room on this, but he has said that already that he's ready to act if they need to. Right. And I think part of the challenge of when thinking about all of this is that, you know, everybody just assumes that the only reaction that 
the U.S. could do is a military strike. And that is certainly an option. But I think the president has also other options, such as he could try to increase economic sanctions as a way to retaliate. He could try to rally the world to come up with some sort of a package that somehow penalizes the Iranians. And also, as he has done in the past, he could turn to cyber attacks to try to cripple Iran's system. There are different ways to approach this, and that's some of the things that he's weighing. And also, he could just leave it to the Saudis. The Saudis buy billions of dollars of weapons from the Americans every year, and they, in theory, should have the capacity to respond to this attack themselves without relying on the United States. According to some of the tweets, though, it seemed like the president was saying he wanted to follow the lead of Saudi Arabia and some of this. And a lot of people in Washington weren't very happy with the way this implication seemed the way it was going. It was very much a poorly worded tweet from the president saying, basically, we're waiting for the Saudi Arabians to decide how to proceed. And it just came across as if we were going to have them tell us what to do. And so a lot of people, including some Republicans, but especially a lot of Democrats, seized on this and said, look, this is another example of President Trump deferring to the Saudis. And ever since he's been president, he has very much done pretty much everything the Saudis wanted. I mean, he's ignored their human rights abuses. He's let them get a way with killing a Saudi journalist who used to live in the United States. And he has not pulled the U.S. out of the war in Yemen. And that's something that bipartisan basis Congress wanted him to do. And he vetoed that. So he's basically just completely thrown his lot in with the Saudis on many levels. And so this was just one of those moments where everybody's like, wait a minute, the United States does not take orders from foreign power. One of the other big questions is what is U.S. interest? Obviously, the Saudis, you know, this is all of their own stuff. And at what point, again, would the U.S. get involved to protect the U.S. interests? Is Saudi Arabia considered that? I know that was a big question popping up also. The administration has not been very consistent in saying what it cares about when it comes to the region. Back when John Bolton was still the National Security Advisor, he went around saying if Iran attacks any of U.S. or American allies' interests in the region, that there will be an overwhelming response. And everybody's like, well, what does that even mean? And what do we need to do if Iran attacks a small boat belonging to the Emiratis or something like that? And the U.S. never really defined it. At a certain point, some people thought, well, it might mean that if there's an American soldier killed or wounded by an Iranian strike, then maybe the U.S. would have to respond. But again, this administration, its messaging is very murky, and that leaves people very confused. And the Iranians clearly feel like they are willing to test this president and see how far they can go before he responds. Obviously, we know that there's a lot of tensions between the United States and Iran. There was some talk about the president possibly meeting with Iranian leaders to just hammer some of this stuff out. But I think representatives from Iran had said there's not going to be any meeting. There's not going to be any talks on any of this. The Supreme Leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, has said that there's not going to be any negotiation. And that's actually different than dialogue, though. And so it's an important point. I mean, it probably means that there won't be a meeting between Trump and the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani. But Khamenei's comment does not rule out the possibility of just talks, just regular dialogue. It just for now rules out this idea of negotiations, which is a very different thing when you think about it. And when it comes to international diplomacy, these types of nuances matter a lot. Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Leading Democrats have tried to grab onto yet another poorly sourced, thinly reported, unsubstantiated allegation 
against Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Joining us now is Niall Stanage, White House columnist at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Niall. Good to be here. We're going to be talking about the recent report from the New York Times about Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh and the new sexual misconduct complaint against him. There's been a lot of missteps with how this was rolled out. The New York Times initially in the story that they published forgot to mention that the woman in this case, this new allegation, didn't recall that this had ever happened. This was according to friends of hers. And they didn't put in their original story. This led you know, everybody to kind of cast doubt on the allegation mm. as a whole. The president went on to say that everything that the New York Times reports is false. Niall, tell us a little bit about how this whole thing played out. The central issue or the central problem was the fact that you've already alluded to that in this story, a new allegation was mentioned and the fact that the woman who's not identified cannot recall it was not mentioned. As with any thing in journalism, whenever there is one serious mistake or misstep in a story, that inevitably is used by people to cast doubt on the entirety of the reporting. And that's what happened in this case, even though there is Separate from the unidentified woman, the story did mention that a total of seven people have at least some recollection of a, a separate complaint that was already known about by a woman named Deborah Ramirez, who attended Yale at the same time as Brett Kavanaugh. And the New York Times article was mostly about Deborah Ramirez and how her life played out at the time. And they drew this correlation to it. They said that this new allegation was very similar to that other one, in which case they say that Brett Kavanaugh had his pants down and friends pushed him into the girl and pushed his penis into the girl at that point. That was the new allegation. And it loosely mirrored what happened to Deborah Ramirez. So that's kind of how they were drawing that correlation. But there was a lot of things also curious about the placement of the article, too. They placed it in the opinion section. I think somebody said, if you have a big story like this, a new allegation, why wouldn't that be a front page story? The official line from the New York Times on that is a little bit complicated. Basically, this story was an excerpt or adapted from a book which in turn was written by two New York Times reporters. And the Times argument is that when they are recasting something from a book by their reporters, they tend to place it in the opinion section. That being said, it was a decision that seemed to garner some criticism from across the political spectrum or from people of divergent political views, because obviously people who are supportive of Brett Kavanaugh or supportive of the president see that in one way as opinionating, and also people who are less supportive and more critical of Kavanaugh or Trump see it as kind of uh, pulling punches, for want of a better term. And now we have all of the fallout. A lot of 2020 Democrats have called for in the impeachment of Brett Kavanaugh. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley has filed an impeachment resolution in the House. A lot of this stuff is going to go nowhere. A lot of senators have already said that they're not going to support any of this. They think that these allegations are just another long in the line of uh, you know, a witch hunt against Brett Kavanaugh. They're just trying to continue to smear him. What's been the reaction on both sides of this story? I think that there is a division even beyond the both sides framework in that you mentioned Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and her resolution wanting an impeachment inquiry. Congresswoman Presley is clearly identified with the left of the Democratic Party, the so-called squad, another member of which Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez has also called for Kavanaugh's impeachment. 
In saying that, there is not really great enthusiasm among more centrist members of the Democratic Party for that kind of move. For example, Dick Durbin, a senator from Illinois, is being quite publicly critical of that push, suggesting that it would distract from the kind of kitchen table issues that he believes would be more politically effective. So, On the one hand, we've this split within the Democratic Party. Republicans are more united, I suppose, in the sense that they don't want any suggestion that Kavanaugh should be impeached. And in fact, prominent members of the Republican Party, including Senator Lindsey Graham, have tried to sort of make a virtue out of their opposition to such impeachment or their refusal to allow such a thing to go forward. There's been a lot of conversation about the media and the role that the media plays, journalistic standards and practices. Obviously, the president throws the term around a lot, fake news. The New York Times is one of his favorite targets. I think in a tweet, he said that how many stories are wrong? Almost all of the New York Times stories have Mm -hmm. done inaccurate and, and wrong reporting. What does this do for the reputation of the New York Times? Well, it's not good. I mean, the New York Times has encountered a number of troubles or controversies recently, and this certainly does not help their cause any. I mean, it's uh, at the least an error of judgment that does hurt their reputation. That being said, President Trump's criticisms of the New York Times are not by any reasonable stretch fair-minded. I mean, he goes after the Times because he goes after outlets that are critical of him and seeks to, broadly speaking, delegitimize criticism of him. The problem here for the New York Times is that this apparent misstep has bolstered Trump's argument and undercut the Times' reputation. And obviously, that's not good. That's not what anyone wants to do in journalism. Niall Stanage, White House columnist at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. What's going to differentiate this streaming service from all these other ones? And the main answer here is going to be property that is owned by NBC Universal's various studios. Joining us now is Leslie Goldberg, West Coast television editor at The Hollywood Reporter and co-host of TV's Top 5 podcast. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thanks for having me. NBC Universal just released details of their new streamer. This is going to be competing against the likes of Netflix, Hulu, the new HBO Max. The field is getting very crowded already. Their new streamer is going to be called Peacock. Tell us a little bit about what we know so far. Well, Peacock takes its name from the iconic NBC logo that is more than 60 years old. Peacock will be an ad-supported platform. Comcast cable subscribers will get Peacock for free. They will have an option to step up to another tier that's ad-free for a small fee. And non-Comcast subscribers will also have an opportunity to buy into the service as well for what I'm told is a different fee. We know that it'll debut in April 2020, but we do not know a specific date. Original programming will launch later in the summer. The entire Comcast portfolio will use the Summer Olympics, which is one of the biggest event of the year, if not the biggest event of 2020 for television. They will use the Olympic Games as a launch pad for Peacock. So expect a lot of promotion around the Olympics for the streaming service and whatever content they will have with originals that will launch after the games are over. I mean, that's going to be a great vehicle for them to get the word out. Obviously, as you mentioned, it's the biggest thing for TV. Everybody's going to be glued to their televisions watching coverage. And that's one of the key concerns is as the 
field of all these streamers really starts expanding, how do you make a name for yourself? Obviously, one of the big thing is original content, but still, how do you get the word out? And using the Olympics as a foil to that is going to be hugely beneficial to them. And you can expect a company-wide promotion behind Peacock. As much as they're going to promote the Olympics, they're going to promote Peacock as well. And you can expect to see ads for both things all across the NBC portfolio. So the broadcast network, the slew of cable brands, USA Network, Sci-Fi, E, Bravo, Oxygen, they will all be promoting this, both of these things. And in terms of how to cut through, I mean, look, the fact that this streamer is something that's going to exist alongside the likes of the Warner Brothers entry, which is HBO Max, Disney Plus. Hulu and YouTube still is sort of doing originals, though not really. Of course, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu is now controlled by Disney. The piece that's hard to cut through with all of these is what's going to differentiate this streaming service from all these other ones. And the main answer here is going to be property that is owned by NBC Universal's various studios. So The Office, we already know, is going to be streaming exclusively on Peacock. We learned this week that Parks and Rec will also be exclusive to Peacock. They will have a wide variety of library titles, including one of my favorites, Friday Night Lights, plus everything from Brooklyn Nine-Nine to Keeping Up with the Kardashians to Parenthood to Bates Motel and 30 Rock. All of those titles will be shared with Hulu and other outlets that they're streaming on until those deals expire, at which point most of these will wind up becoming exclusive to Peacock. So the big way to get people in the door is with big favorites and lots of library programming. So the office is the great start to that. So when it launches, they say that they're going to have more than 15,000 hours of content. Obviously, original programming is going to be a huge part of that. What do we know about the original programming that's slated to start for this new Peacock service? Well, using the libraries as a backbone, that's going to be really what you look to for originals. So knowing that they have the office in Parks and Recreation, one of the first things that they picked up was a new show from Mike Schur, who created Parks and Recreation and was an executive producer and, of course, recurring actor on The Office. That show will star Ed Helms, who, of course, was a star from The Office. <laughs> right, exactly. And they're going to do the same thing on the drama side. So they will have the library of Ron Moore's sci-fi favorite, Battlestar Galactica. And guess what? what? They're rebooting Battlestar Galactica with one of its most important cable-focused producers, Sam Ismail, creator of Mr. Robot and Amazon's Homecoming. And as for other originals, they're leaning into the people who have eight- and nine-figure overall deals with the company. So Lauren Michaels will have a new docuseries focusing on writers behind SNL, which, by the way, SNL, the entire library, will be available on Peacock. They are also looking to Seth Meyers to exec produce. He's going to do a late-night sketch show. Imagine Jimmy Fallon only doing the opening monologue. That's what he's going to do, but it's going to be with Amber Ruffin, who, of course, is from his show, from Late Night with Seth Meyers, or whatever that show is called, (laughs) Uh, or Late Late Show with Seth Meyers. There's too many late shows, too many of everything. I agree. (laughs) Yeah, one of the funny... Lots of IP, lots of content from producers you've fallen in love with over the years through the NBC fold. And really falling back onto that nostalgia stuff, there's going to be a Punky Brewster sequel with Salil Moonfry uh, starring. There's going to be one that I'm excited... a pilot... So that we're waiting to see. Of course, they're going to shoot it. And then if they like it, then they'll pick it up to series. But look, they need content and they plan on checking all the boxes. So they need programming for kids. They have Spanish language stuff from Telemundo, which they own. They're going to do animated stuff. They're teaming with their feature film counterparts at DreamWorks Animation to do animated kids shows. And the film division will look at some of these beloved IPs like Fast and the Furious to launch new TV franchises out of as well, which is a strategy similar to what Disney Plus is doing. 
Leslie Goldberg, West Coast television editor at The Hollywood Reporter and co-host of TV's Top 5 Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.